Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's the groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. This Father's Day, power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. Find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Spectrum Internet has enough speed to handle all your needs. So you can work, game, and stream with speeds up to a gig. Plus, Spectrum's advanced Wi-Fi provides enhanced security for all your connected devices. Get Spectrum Internet with fast and reliable speeds, starting at just $29.99 a month with a two-year price guarantee. Visit spectrum.com slash internet for you for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Restrictions apply. What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod Pina, who continues to cover the NBA for 538 and GQ. We don't have maybe too much more NBA to cover, Michael, after Game 1 of the NBA Finals took a real sharp turn there midway through the first quarter. As I'm sure a lot of our listeners know, Miami was cruising uh, 23-10, to feeling very good about that South Beach lifestyle, that heat culture, and then they just fell off the rails and kept falling and kept falling and kept falling. Next thing you know, the Los Angeles Lakers have a 30-plus point lead in the third quarter. They cruise to victory in Game 1, adding injuries to the insult, Michael. Goran Dragic, foot injury. Jimmy Butler, ankle injury. Bam Adebayo, shoulder injury. So you're talking about your three top finals MVP candidates in, for Miami all getting injured in Game 1. Meanwhile, the Heat had no answer for Anthony Davis inside. He went absolutely nuts. LeBron practically had a triple-double. He was cruising along in like third, maybe fourth gear um, for most of that game. The Lakers somehow couldn't miss a three-point shot. They look an awful lot like a team that wants to end this series immediately so that they can go home. My head is spinning, Michael. What are you, what are you thinking right now? I mean, how did you process that uh, drastic turn of events in game one. Yeah, I mean, they have the 13-point lead early on, and it it looks like, oh, wow, Tyler Hero. I tweeted this. Tyler Hero hasn't even checked into the game. I mean, like, the the Heat looked great. And as I was saying to you before we started recording, uh, on the the televised broadcast, you know, uh, Heater up big, commanding lead, and then... It cuts to uh, a sideline interview with Rachel Nichols, and you are in the background, and you're hovering over another reporter, another laptop, 
And then it just all falls apart for the Heat right after that. So what do you have to say for yourself? So you're blaming me for this Game 1 meltdown? I personally injured all three of Miami's stars with my video bomb presence? 100%. That's the only explanation. No, I think that, uh, you know, I think that this was, this is, this stinks a lot. Um, I thought that this series would be really competitive. I picked Heat in seven um, in part because, you know, I have a lot of respect for Miami and their, their, their discipline and uh, all the, the ways that they can attack on offense. And I have respect for LeBron James and Anthony Davis and, and Frank Vogel and how they've, kind of, uh, you know, been so successful on this run to the finals. And it's it's clearly the two best teams in the NBA and the two most deserving teams. And to have Goran Dragic suffer this injury non-contact, um, for Jimmy to roll his ankle, for Bam to re-aggravate his shoulder, uh, when Dwight Howard, I mean, like, did you think that the Dwight Howard uh, play there was a little questionable where he basically just lowers his shoulder into Bam's shoulder I, I didn't find that to be a basketball play at all um and didn't really hear too many people talking about that but um Bam you know if if, if the Miami Heat aren't 100% healthy they have no chance in this series no that's an interesting thing on the Dwight I hadn't really considered that I guess I was so taken aback by how LA's front line, and that includes LeBron, was just treating Miami's defenders like ragdolls, right? They were Mm -hmm. just plowing through them play after play, whether it's offensive rebounds, whether it's um, drives to the hoop. I mean, poor Jay Crowder. Can we clone him if he has to guard Anthony Davis so it's not one-on-one? Can that be a two-on-one situation? Um, That's not ending very well for him. Um, Just to double back on my jinx, Michael, I was uh, standing over... (laughs) The computer uh, or or the person of, of Tim Frank, NBA PR man, who has been kind of coordinating things down here for the last couple months, I was requesting access to the Larry O'Brien trophy and the new Louis Vuitton Larry O'Brien trophy case. Have you seen this thing? It oh, is wow. absolutely spectacular. And they were putting pictures all over social media. And then when we got into the um, the new kind of dressed up arena for the finals, there were just Larry O'Brien uh, banners and images everywhere by the tunnels, and and I just got so excited. I mean, that trophy always grabs me, so I was like, I need to see this thing. Can you please set this trophy with its new trophy case up somewhere so I can do it for the gram and get like 300 pictures? In the middle of him saying, <laughs> in the middle of Tim Frank saying, dude, chill out, no, like we're in the middle of game one in the finals, that's when they cut to Rachel Nichols, and so you'll see me look up all sad. You can't really tell because I have a mask on, but um, needless to say, <laughs> that's the story behind the story on my five seconds of uh, of television fame. Um, no, the physicality of L.A. stood out to me. Um, you know, I, it's not like we're going to blame all of my uh, Miami's injuries on that, but they just did not have answers inside. It was way too easy for LeBron to get to the basket. And then Anthony Davis, I just felt like... If they're going forward in this series, don't they just have to basically have Bam glued to him and and not switch anything involving Anthony Davis? Because they have no one else on their roster who even has a prayer of guarding him, do they? I I don't know how many people... I've been thinking about this for a little while, and I'm probably going to write about it, maybe, hopefully. I don't know what teams have an answer for this version of Anthony Davis. Like... It's just period, point blank. He's phenomenal. You said earlier, uh, you know, Jay Crowder, they need to cl- they need to clone him. Two Jay Crowders would get demolished by this Anthony Davis. <laughs> like, it's, it's not even a question. Um, so I, 
the physicality, that's really a great point to bring up. I, I mean, I, I tweeted this again last night during the game. I think we're going to see some Myers Leonard in this series, even if Bam is healthy. I mean, it's it's really tough that the, the, the issues that Anthony Davis presents for you, um, just in terms of your lineups and your rotations, uh, it's pretty brutal. So I think that Eric Spolstra is, I think all options are on the table for Eric Spolstra right now. Yeah. So the thing with Myers Leonard, I mean, so his nickname is the hammer. He's got some real strength to him. He's got one of the best physiques on Instagram you're ever going to see from an NBA player. Um, usually his role in that situation is basically six fouls, right? I mean, that's kind of what you're getting there. That's another problem with defending Anthony Davis. The guy shoots free throws like a six foot one point guard, you know? So again, it's just like one more layer to like how difficult it is to deal with him is that you can't even resort to, you know, hack a shack type tactics with him because he's such a full and complete player. He's on a different level right now. I mean, he is so locked in. And, uh, you know, we came into this series, I think we were actually right, saying, like, Bam is the best equipped player in the league to guard Anthony Davis. Um, There's maybe a few other candidates on that shortlist. But look what he's done. I mean, annihilated Portland's front line, completely won the stylistic mismatch against Houston, which we didn't necessarily expect to go his way as, as thoroughly as it did. And then I thought he drastically outplayed Jokic too, right? I mean, you look at the overall body of work and impact in that Western Conference Finals, AD won that one as well. It's not exactly a head-to-head matchup, um, but certainly uh, he came out on top. I was also surprised that the Lakers had so much success with their big lineups. I I don't know exactly how you feel on that, and and possibly that happened because Bam got into some foul trouble, and that's really where the game got away from Miami. But I thought it was going to be a situation where they had to go to AD at the five and play Miami style, and that's really not what happened. They just kind of pounded, 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 and Dwight gave them some good minutes. Um, and he, you know, he his energy it seems like is going to be enough to keep up with Bam. I don't know. I mean, it, it really feels like a situation where if you're Miami, you're completely blitzed right now. I mean, this wasn't like a feel out loss. This was a feel bad loss, right? You just feel bad about <laughs> literally everything that happened. And Spolster made a comment afterwards saying like he didn't know exactly what his message was going to be to his team. And then he added kind of, uh, you know, to, as an aside, it doesn't even really matter what I would say right now, because obviously, you know, given the circumstances, you get, you know, kind of punked like that in game one. There's not like some big like rocky speech that you're going to get through to your guys, right? You just kind of have to lick your wounds and move on. Um, But where would you even start here? Uh, You know, I I mentioned one idea of just like, bam, you have to guard Anthony Davis. You can't get into foul trouble. We're not switching. You know, we're we're just going to try to neutralize AD as the first step. That would be how I would approach it because... You do ultimately have to live or die with the the Lakers shooters. If they shoot like that, well, they won't. I mean, they're not going to shoot that well again, right? But if you lose this series because they're hitting shots, you live with that. You just can't have Anthony Davis do whatever the heck he wants. And so I think uh, that would be my top priority. How about you? Yeah, I mean, I second all of that. You cross your fingers that Danny Green doesn't hit three threes. KCP doesn't hit a couple. Um, I mean, the team shooting 11 for 22 on above the break threes is... That's just a death sentence. If that happens, you're not going to beat a team that has LeBron and Anthony Davis on it. Um, you know, what was really fascinating to me were two two things. Uh, number one, uh, Miami did not utilize their zone at all. Um, three possessions, according to Second Spectrum. And, uh, you know, uh, L.A. had 
a lot of success in those three possessions. Um, but there's three possessions. I mean, I, 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 you know, we came into this thinking that uh, the zone could be the story of the bubble um, in its entirety. And, uh, you know, they had so much success against the Boston Celtics with it, particularly early in that series. I was expecting them to uh, lean on it early and often, and they just didn't. And, you know, related to that point, uh, you you said earlier that LeBron was in, you know, sec- second or third gear, and there were plays where he would just dribble the ball up and throw it to KCP, and KCP would run like a side pick and roll with Anthony Davis. And a lot of KCP in this one. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like the ultimate disrespect. It's just like, I'm going to take this play off. I'm LeBron. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, not, I'm probably not even feeling tired right now, but I don't want to exert unnecessary energy. And so those were funny, but what also kind of surprised me a little bit was, you know, going back to, you know, the 2016 finals and how LeBron would run those 3-1 or 4-1 pick and rolls with Kyrie to kind of hunt Steph Curry as much as he could. Um, It's not like LeBron does not do that a lot. He does it more than anybody in the NBA, but I did not expect him to go to that, uh, that look and that tactic just as early and as often and at the volume that he did in that game. I mean, he was hunting Tyler Hero every play. He was hunting Duncan Robinson. He was hunting Goran Dragic before Dragic got hurt. Um, He just didn't want to deal with Andre Iguodala or Bam um, or Jimmy, really. And it was like, that is a strategy that you kind of go to in crunch time usually. You don't see it throughout a basketball game because it just like it disrupts rhythm and it gets everybody out of what you want to do. But that's what the Lakers apparently wanted to do. So if I'm Miami, like I got to figure out a way to, 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 to counter that. And I think the zone is a pretty decent solution. Yeah, I think that the trade-off was worth it to LeBron because he has that little respect for Hero and Robinson defensively, mm-hmm. right? And those guys played some really important minutes to get here. Um, but the talent level that LA has, obviously top end talent, is significantly higher than Boston or even Milwaukee, because you know Giannis was kind of that one man band. Uh, you know, and Middleton's a very talented player, but he's obviously not Anthony Davis, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, I think you're in a situation here where you know it is almost a little bit of a disrespectful strategy from LeBron. It's like, come on, you guys can't even have these guys on the court. If they're on the court, I'm going to play them off the court. And you look at Heroes plus minus; it was like minus thirty something. Um, in the 22 minutes, minus he was, 35. Yep. Yeah, he can't play. I mean, that's. You, I mean, that's another adjustment. Is like, well, he can't play when LeBron's on the court. Basically, is is what that's going to boil down to, or that's going to continue to happen unless you can hide them in the zone. I do wonder: is Miami afraid to go to the zone because they respect LeBron's passing ability so much? Are they worried that he's going to be able to kind of get in between the top of that that zone defense? You know, suck people into the zone and then just throw these lasers to his shooters and it's just going to be you know clean catch and shoot threes over and over and over again because I think that's the difference the main difference between say LeBron or Tatum or Jalen Brown or whoever you want to have in that uh, lead playmaker role for Boston is that those guys are not passing at the same level LeBron can pass at and so he can beat the zone in ways that um, you know Boston really wasn't equipped, and it's not like LA shooters are significantly better than Boston shooters, but I just think that maybe Miami's worried about the shot quality that that LeBron could set up. Um, what do you think? Yeah, LeBron. I mean, it's LeBron. He's the queen on the chessboard. He can make any pass. He can find any open teammate. Uh, he made some skip passes early in that game that were just like br- absolutely breathtaking. He's still. 
like the best passer alive. So I, I, I 100% agree with that. I also think that, um, you know, he's also probably one of the strongest players in the game. And so uh, you put this zone up top and even when it's like, you know, they use the big wings, Miami does in their zone, which is really unique. Like, it doesn't really matter. Like, LeBron, there was one play where he just, like, put Jimmy Butler, uh, like, like basically just tossed him to the side on a drive. It was like a, a it was like a, a drive into a back down, and I think it resulted in a wide open three for Kuzma in the corner or something. Or maybe it was KCP, but like LeBron is so strong. No, that, that, like, that's he, crazy because there was another one where he took Jimmy Butler, just had him on his hip the whole way, plowed through him, and got a layup along the baseline. You know, and like yeah, I also thought Iguodala looked like forty five years old against LeBron. <laughs> I mean, maybe that sounds rude, but I'm just, that's what, no. that's the visual experience was like of a 45-year-old guy trying to chase LeBron. You, you watch the footage of the 2016 finals and the 2015 finals, and it's it's so jarring because you're right, Andre Iguodala does not look like the same player, but LeBron looks exactly the same, which is, it's just really, really comical. I mean, LeBron just makes that zone or in like the one or two possessions that they went to it. He made it look like a cobweb. Um, and so maybe that's why Spolstra went away from it, but I don't know. I feel like it lets you not, it lets you hide, as you said, uh, Hero or Duncan, because those guys, like, you can't bench them. They're so important to what you do on the offensive end. Um, so, I don't know. That that would be my number one just obvious adjustment is you got to go to the zone more. I think you could you could go lighter on Hero, and you could go more strategically. Like, don't have him on the court when LeBron's on the court. Just basically, like, mm-hmm. uh, stagger their minutes as much as possible. You are pretty much stuck playing Duncan, right? So, that's... If you're not going to zone, you just have to be ready for LeBron on Duncan as much as possible, and that could end ugly. And you're probably going to have to, you know, hard double LeBron at certain points if that's what it comes to in those situations, and then just hope you can, uh, you know, dare one of those guys to miss some three pointers, and you, know, you you could maybe survive that way. We'll see. We got this question from Thaddeus Michael. It's a big picture question. He says, "I'm a Lakers fan who was terrified going into this series because Bam was probably the best AD defender, as we mentioned earlier, Michael." He goes on to say, I even bet on Miami knowing that LeBron likes to go into the series with the feel-out game in Game 1. So what happened in Game 1? Can this all be chalked up to the Lakers hitting their open threes and Miami went cold? Ben always likes to hammer home the East-West gap, being the Western (laughs) Conference elitist. Are we seeing that overall talent gap play out in real time? Miami rolled through the Bucs and beat the Celtics, but is being in the East inflating their credentials even more than we thought. And Michael, I famously said back in October 2019 that there was more talent in a five-mile radius of my apartment in LA than there was from Maine to Miami. Um, Is that what happened? Did we just see LA conquer the day? Or do you have um, other explanations, excuses, or um, extenuating circumstances? I mean, I kind of just... I guess, like, I see what you're saying about the East-West gap. Um, I kind of look at it as as relevant to the, the, the playoffs and to a title run as being not that wide because, like, what makes the East so terrible is, like, the Knicks and the Hornets and the Hawks and just, like, the bottom of the conference is so bad, whereas in the West, there aren't those teams like the worst team this year was the Warriors and the Warriors are going to be a juggernaut again next season and the Kings even are like they have respectable talent and they know what they're doing um kind of 
Uh, so uh, that's kind of where I look at the gap more so than, okay, the top four teams in the East are really good. And the top, and I mean, the Heat are the, the fifth seed and they're in the finals. Um, and then the top four or five teams in the West are really good. And I think that those are comparable, honestly. Um, so I don't, I don't really look at the gap as wide as you do, but like, I see, I see your point, I guess I'm saying. So my main argument is just like, it's a 20 year argument, right? It's just, if you look at the overall, where have the dynasty teams been? Typically it's, it's been the Western conference where have been the higher concentration of hall of fame level players, you know, who have won the head to head matchups in the finals more often and all that. So this is not just like a one year sample. I'm, I'm more talking about. Um, a 20 year body of work here. No, I know, I know. No, I'm just providing that that uh, context for Thaddeus's question. Now, mm-hmm. in terms of this particular year, um, look, there was a lot of really good teams at the top of the Eastern Conference, and stuff just kept happening to them, right? And I do think that some of this has to be explained by the bubble. Uh, Milwaukee does not go out the same way they did if there's no bubble, if there's no shutdown, right? I actually think, you know, if Boston could redo that Eastern Conference final series, now that we got a look at how beatable Miami really is, I still think Boston should have won that series, you know, if they could have played better in, in crunch time minutes and in the fourth quarter. Like, there was real opportunities for them to do that, right? So would they have put up a better fight against the Lakers? You could, you could make an argument there for me. I actually thought Miami matched up better with the Lakers, but these injury issues are going to um, are going to change the tenor of this series. It's very possible that we wind up looking back on this year, and it, it just winds up being the conclusion. Well, the Lakers had two of the top five players. Of course, they won the title. And I don't know if that's um, if that it sounds that sounds overly simplistic to me, right? I don't think that's exactly. Um, reflective of what took place before the shutdown in terms of how much jockeying there was between them and the Clippers. And then I'm not sure it's reflective of all the variables that happened within this bubble. So I am not going to use this opportunity to wave Mm -hmm. the Western Conference's flag and say, oh yeah, everybody in the Eastern Conference was just a bunch of bums all year long. Because um, first of all, game one went as perfectly as it could go for the Lakers and as badly as it possibly could go for the Heat, right? So the truth is going to be at least somewhat in the middle. Now, do I still expect a sweep or a five-game win for the Lakers at this point? Yes, I Mm -hmm. do. Was I anticipating that coming in? No, I wasn't because I watched every single Heat playoff game and they were pretty darn impressive, uh, you know, throughout the whole way. Um, Ultimately, when you get to this very high stage, though, we've seen it over and over again. Talent usually wins out, especially if those guys are locked in and on the same page. And the Lakers are right now. So um, I think this is more about crediting the LeBron AD pairing as opposed to discrediting the weaker conference. I'm honestly stunned that you approached this with the level of nuance that you did in terms of, Ouch. Uh, you know, <laughs> I was going to use the phrase no disrespect, but I know that you don't like when people do that. No, so. I love when people do that. <laughs> So I, uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm a little stunned, to be honest with you, because, uh, you know, you're bringing up a lot of the, the, the complicated nature of, of the bubble and um, how, uh, you know, the Bucks didn't have home court. The Bucks had to deal with, uh, not had to deal with, but there was the, uh, the, the strike. There was, uh, there's a lot of teams that I'm doing, a, uh, I've been reporting a story about this for quite a while, but just the actual impact that COVID-19 had on players who tested positive, who then went in the bubble and competed, and what we don't know about that. Um, 
which is just another, it seems pretty crass to say that that is related to an asterisk in basketball competition. Um, but that impacted the competition. That's just like, it's an undeniable fact. So, um, it's not to take anything against uh, away from uh, the Lakers. I don't want to make it sound like that because like I could go on for the next six hours talking about how I think AD is about to like transform the NBA. Um, he's incredible. Uh, but I do think that we need to, to balance things out when we talk about all this and there's all these different uh, extenuating circumstances. For sure. And also, I mean, look, the Western Conference has been better for a long time. It is self-evident. We don't need to take every single opportunity to remind people. I try to take only like nine out of 10 of those opportunities. Um, <laughs> but look, I mean, the West, Western Conference is just like SEC football, right? You know, everybody else is playing on a different level. All right, Michael, um, you mentioned going on for six hours. How about six minutes uh, for, okay. for Anthony Davis? Because it did feel like a different kind of blossoming. I was remembering back to um, 2012 when Kevin Durant and LeBron came back from the Olympics experience and they were like, oh yeah, Anthony Davis is going to be like the next face of the league and he's going to be an MVP and he's going to be a Hall of Famer. And whatever he did over there in those practices uh, opened their eyes and it was kind of this long process of well, when are the rest of us going to get to see this, right? Because that's huge praise from guys who have done it, who are already currently on that level. They're anointing him, and we're watching him go out in the first round, even if he makes the playoffs, for a couple years straight there. Now, obviously, that's not all his fault. He's dependent upon his playmakers. His his talent was always evident, but there were injury issues. There were questions about his leadership his personality really never connected with the masses. People wanted to start comparing him to Carl Anthony Towns in terms of who's actually mm. the better franchise player to build around. All these twists and turns for Anthony Davis. Then he gets himself into a complete you know, trade request disaster, frankly, there for a couple months where he's sitting on stage at All-Star Weekend and he has a list, but he doesn't have a list. Let me call my agent and see if I do have a list. I mean, he's just you know kind of lost control of the story there. And mm-hmm. now somehow... Everything has aligned perfectly, and he is just destroying teams during this postseason, playing better basketball than maybe I ever expected to see him play. What are you seeing from Anthony Davis? Is this sort of like birth of a legend type stuff here in this playoff run? It is. And to be frank, one of the reasons why I doubted the Lakers heading into this was because I thought that, I thought, first of all, I thought that teams would really go out of their way to slow down the pace, slow down the tempo, keep them out of transition. And I was really curious as to how successful, I know LeBron's going to be successful, but I was curious to see what Anthony Davis would look like in the mud, um, so to speak. And yeah, he's emerged from the mud. No, he's got <laughs> he's got some waiter boots, man. He's got some. Uh, he's well <laughs> equipped for the mud. He looks like he's a fisherman out there with the full slicks. He has no problem with mud. Yeah, so the guy is. I mean, in, in my opinion, if I had to bet right now, he's going to be the Finals MVP. Oh, um, he's the MVP of the bubble. He's 27 years old. Uh, in my opinion, the best defender in the world for, I, I you know, I, I think there are really a lot of really talented defenses. The Lakers are in that conversation, though, and he's why. Um, I have one stat for you. I could throw a million stats at you, but one that just is really simple um, that I'm going to, it's just historical, um, is that, you know, there's 
no player in the history of the NBA has ever averaged 29 points with the true shooting percentage that Anthony Davis has right now. Um, so from that perspective, his efficiency and his production are unparalleled. And if you just drop it down, you can kind of like fudge the numbers a little bit. But if you were to drop it down and say uh, 29 points, true shooting percentage of 66%, uh, it's Anthony Davis right now and Kevin Durant in last year's playoffs. Those are the only guys that have ever done it. Uh, so AD it, is on just a completely different level right now. And AD doesn't even shoot threes. Look, the player he started modeling his game after, especially last summer, lots of work on the perimeter, lots of work getting the ball on the wing, and then you know dribble moves into you know quick things going towards the basket left and right, getting comfortable pull-up jumpers, elbow jumpers, all that work. It sounded an awful lot to me like he wanted to be KD, you know, when I was hearing kind of whispers about what he was doing with the trainers in LA and, and what kind of games he was working on. And there was a big debate back then. Well, wait a minute. Don't they need him to play center? Shouldn't he be down there on the block? And, you know, kind of, again, getting into that, oh, is AD, you know, a little bit soft. He only wants to play power forward and, you know, mm. you know all those kinds of conversations. Um AD's way has been validated. Like, I think we could say that. Like, he had a vision for how he wanted to improve his game and where he thought he could be so efficient. The shooting numbers have been absolutely ridiculous. Bottom line, if you're in a category with Kevin Durant for efficiency of shooting, you're an all-timer, right? Period. Because that's that's the standard that he's been at um, really throughout his prime ever since you know he first broke out as an MVP guy in Oklahoma City. So uh, that is no small praise, that statistic that you brought out. Um, what makes you think he's going to be able to hold off LeBron for finals MVP though? Because LeBron's got, he's got all the narrative juice, Michael. People are going to want to crown him. And AD keeps saying things like LeBron's the best player in the world. You know, he says that after practically every single game that kind of opens the door for the media members to give it to LeBron, doesn't it? (laughs) Humble Anthony Davis. I mean, I heard Markeith Morris call Anthony Davis the best player in the world the other day. So, um... There are others in that camp, for sure. And, I mean, it's it's, it's just undeniable. Like, this kind of reminds me of um, a little bit of the 2007 finals where Tony Parker gets finals MVP, even though Tim Duncan's on the team. And everyone's kind of like, oh, Tim Duncan's the best player. But here it's like, I think it's way more of a conversation about who is the best player on this team right now. I mean, Anthony Davis is like what is really fascinating to me and something that I I, want to write about again is just like I think that the the, the teams are not built to stop this guy teams are built this is the small ball era so if you are a center who can create your own shot he can go to the block he can just absolutely destroy you on the glass Um, he has post moves he has moves from the perimeter he has face a face-up game he can shoot threes he can make buzzer beating threes off screens Um, like I just think that this era was it's like it it, it's perfect for his prime for him to just obliterate the rest of the NBA and honestly you know what's really interesting if you just look at the history of the league like the best players dictate how other teams construct themselves and build because they know that they have to get through player x to win it all so you saw when you know the warriors were going on their run teams were downsizing teams were needing to be as versatile as possible um on the perimeter to defend the three-point line to and then a whole uh, bunch of plumbers got hired when Shaq came along right i mean (laughs) exactly um 
And, you know, teams wanted wing defenders to handle LeBron, to handle Kawhi, to handle Harden, etc. Um, I, I, like, just look at the Heat and how they're built right now and what they have to stop uh, Anthony Davis. They were playing Andre Iguodala as their backup five. They had Solomon Hill get minutes on him. Um, you look at the Rockets, it was P.J. Tucker. That was, like, the, that was plan A. There and there was no plan B. It worked for three quarters, you know. That's the thing. Like, and AD will figure you out too. I mean, I do think that his mind probably gets a little bit underrated in all this too. When you have as many tools that you can go to, you know, if you see an undersized guy pressuring you, maybe earlier in his career that takes him out for a series. It's possible, right? Now he, they have counters. LeBron can help him get to those counters. Um, and there isn't really a great archetype for how you slow him down. I mean, I've heard some people make this argument. Well, do you need to have does the small ball over now because of Anthony Davis? Do teams have to go back and have a designated big guy to kind of like lean on him and, and make him uncomfortable? It's like, good luck trying to play big against Anthony Davis because he's going to take you out to 18 and just snipe jumpers over you all day long. And he's going to be too quick to uh, to move around you and, and get into pick and roll situations, dunk over the top of you and, mm-hmm. and just go to the free throw line. Like there isn't really a good model of defender the best one that we've seen would be like a Giannis or a Bam right I mean guys who can kind of match him and even then AD has the longest arms basically anyone's ever seen (laughs) so like even if you have these guys Mm -hmm. who are almost like perfectly proportioned to stick with him from a quickness and strength uh, and you know uh, size perspective they're still not going to have those extra couple inches that could make a difference so no, yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, and when you're that great as AD is and is becoming, there's no like stopping players like that. That's just like, it's not an option. But you can't, my, my, my greater point is just like, you can't enter a playoff series with no options, right? Like PJ Tucker, uh, again, like God bless his soul. But like, if that's your plan A, and that gets just, tossed aside immediately because this guy is able to just defeat you in so many different ways physically and from the outside with his finesse like you're screwed so I think that I think that we're gonna see a a shift a little bit in how teams are kind of building themselves that actually want to win the championship because you can't enter a playoff series as you know as entirely small like Houston, or even Miami, to be frank. I mean, they have Bam, sure, and we're going to see Bam, if Bam is healthy, guard AD. I just honestly don't know if it's enough based on what we've seen out of this guy over the past uh, couple months. I'm with you, because any option they had besides Bam was just an utter disaster. I'm willing to say it right now, Michael. I'm willing to say this. The biggest mistake I made this entire year was underrating Anthony Davis. I don't Mm -hmm. think I gave him the, the right amount of credit, and he is proving uh, a lot of people wrong. And congratulations to him. Hey, here's a question for you based on just kind of the injuries that we saw from Miami side of things. Did it remind you at all of when Kawhi Leonard got undercut by Zaza? You remember that game, how quickly the momentum shifted? I felt like in this one, the game turned obviously before all of Miami's players got injured. But as we're starting to get these tweets, like heat PR says Goran's got the foot injury and like, they just kind of keep rolling and rolling and rolling. The momentum is just like snowballing. You'll remember that series without Kawhi, like Golden State has the miracle comeback and then they just take care of business. I believe they swept that series. I guess I put it to you now as somebody who picked the heat before the series, like, and I know you, you hate to change your predictions, but 
Are we looking at a sweep? Is this one of those things where like the momentum shifted so hard, the injuries loom so large that Miami's toast? Are you are you ready to go there or no? I, I sent an email to a Laker fan uh, friend of mine saying congrats on the sweep and. I mean, like that's that, that was probably painful. That sounds to me it like was extremely one the- <laughs> painful. No, well, I was trying to, yeah, I was trying to rise above the muck and just be a really good person. Well, basically. that's good. You didn't see see me on that one, Michael. I don't know what happened there. <laughs> uh, no, I kid. Uh, is this how the bubble was going to end? Was it always going to fizzle out? Was it always going to get to the situation where, like, you know, it was this war of attrition, and eventually, just about everyone besides LeBron died? I mean, is that sort of? <laughs> Is that kind of the the message of the bubble? Because if we look back, there's an awful lot of good teams who ended their uh, their seasons in dispiriting fashion, right? I mean, I don't know if you consider Philly a great team. They were good at moments, and they just completely collapsed. Houston, you would say they were a good team, completely collapsed. Clippers, Clippers were a good team, completely collapsed. Milwaukee Bucks, collapsed. Boston could have been better. I'm not going to call it a full collapse, but it was like, Three quarters collapse, right? No, I mean at the end they they collapsed, yeah. That's right. Fair. And so the bubble just gets you, is I guess my point. And did the bubble decide that it was Miami's turn in game one? And now we're all it's all of our turns as well. We're going home in a week. No, I mean that's it it, it that could be the case. And I mean it's kind of reminiscent of what we saw in last year's playoffs a little bit, but it was a different situation with Golden State just because you know, they had four previous years of wear and tear and playoff championship runs. Um, and that's, I think, why they completely broke down at the worst possible time. Um, but yeah, I mean, that could be just the really simple explanation here. Everybody broke down except for the guy who is indestructible, LeBron James. I mean, that that's that makes sense to me. It does feel a little bit fitting for sure. Let me ask you a question. Adam Silver did his... Um his big bubble, State of the Union, State of the Bubble address before game one. And, uh, you know, look, there's been some real challenges for them. Obviously, the shutdown was a real challenge. They had a huge win, keeping everybody um, healthy um, to date with no positive tests. The TV ratings have taken a hit, a pretty substantial hit. I mean, uh, of course, the average game number is going to be way down because they were playing playoff games in the middle of the afternoon. They're playing them in August. They're competing now against football and college football and baseball and hockey and and all sorts of other sports. Um, And they don't have a financial agreement laid out for next season yet. Obviously, they have to go through the negotiating process. Both sides remain optimistic there, but there's a lot of challenges when he's laying all of that out and, and he's almost, uh, in a way, saluting everybody for their sacrifices and understanding that the players are going to need a break after this. They're going to, you know, they're tired physically, they're tired mentally and all the rest. What was the biggest takeaway you had from Adam Silver's bubble address? It was not a typical finals address where he comes and welcomes the global media and celebrates the game and starts <laughs> talking about James Naismith. It was more like he was patting us on the back and being like, guys... I know the last three months have been really, really tough. We're almost done. You get to go home soon. Like that was kind of the vibe to it, you know? Yeah, for sure. I think I had two primary takeaways. Um, Both were forward-looking. One was him just explicitly stating stating that uh, he didn't believe that the NBA needed a vaccine uh, for COVID before fans were in arenas, and that would not be a deterrent. I think that that is... Uh, you know, promising, I guess, for the league going forward. Um, And I'm sure they'll be really smart about, you know, I know that they want 
fans in arenas and seats because that is just a huge source of their revenue. And, um, you know, television is really important and the bubble, uh, you know, prevented them from losing billions of dollars. But uh, financially, they did you know, this was kind of a production where they had to pay to put it on, which is not the case uh, during a normal regular season where you're, you're bringing in money from fans. Um, so I thought that that was uh, interesting. And I personally, you know, it's the situation in the country is like suddenly getting worse again, which is just really dispiriting. Um, and so I'm, you know, my fingers are crossed that they'll be able to start the season in January, uh, maybe February, and then uh, have fans in seats. That would be great and, and, and really just awesome to see, I guess, um, as opposed to a bubble, which I don't know. I, don't, I just don't know what the how much enthusiasm there would be for this to ever happen again. And I, I think tough sell, Michael, very tough. Very, sell. Hey, look, very, very, very I'm in, sell. I think maybe Eric Spolster's in, I'm not sure too many <laughs> other people are, are in. And yeah, look, their, their priority for sure is to play in as many arenas as possible with as many fans as possible as soon as possible. But all three of those variables are up in the air and pretty much out of control, uh, his control, um, him being Adam Silver. What was your second takeaway? Uh, he explicitly just said that, that there's going to have to be, I mean, we all knew this, but that there's going to have to be tough negotiations with the players association regarding the collective bargaining agreement. And as someone who just wants basketball in my life, I, I, I love basketball. I love the NBA. I am personally fearful that those negotiations could be uh not a great process and i am fearful for a labor stoppage i'm just this is not me you know reporting anything i'm not saying anything based on information i'm just i'm i'm weary as someone who just can only imagine how difficult those negotiations are going to be and how complicated they're going to be and you know i don't know what the relationship is between ownership and the players right now and how strong it is um and and how fortified because right now this is not this is not like a golden time in the league you know the money is not like pouring in right now so i think that's that that's when things get pretty contentious and i'm interested to see just how creative they get and how conciliatory they are um together to 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 have the 2021 season go off uh without a hitch have you ever had a negotiation, maybe it was with your wife or I don't know, maybe buying a car or something like that, where the other party just comes in like super blustery and maybe you're nodding your head right now and you're thinking like, yeah, every single time we talk on this podcast, right? Where they come in like super full of fire and like they're, you know, spouting all these talking points. And then at some point, you know, you go back and forth a couple of times and you're just like, hey, drop the act. All right. Like, let's get serious. Like, I I understand you're worked up here, but just like, come on chill like let's let's get real and talk i do feel like if there's any positive to the 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 pandemic i feel like that was the drop the act and chill moment for both sides where like all the posturing just kind of had to go out the window and they both had to look at each other and be like look guys if we can't negotiate and if we can't compromise we all go broke everybody loses money right this is like we are both on the edge of the cliff right now and so I think that that actually, you know, Adam Silver had talked about kind of a spirit of togetherness with the players um, and, and the players union. 
to put together the bubble. And, and he kind of uh, singled out a few different players, Chris Paul, Kyle Lowry, Dwight Powell, um, and some others. I think that was really genuine because I, I don't think in hindsight we should just assume, oh, they were always going to be able to make the bubble. Like that was a real process to pull this thing together. And as you're mentioning, it's going to be a real process to do whatever's next, you know, bubble or not. So I do think the one advantage that they've got is that they've already kept it very, very real with each other for the last three months, right? Like it's no more, oh yeah, sorry, you can't really see our accounting books. We're not going to tell you precisely how much money we're making. It's They're both just like, hey, I'm broke, you're broke, we got to fix this. So what well, can we do? <laughs> yeah, no, I 100%, but that's that was I I feel like the bubble was the bubble and now we're going back into uh something closer to regular times in trying to figure out what we're going to do with the 2020-21 season. Um, so like those tactics, those, you know, those accounting tactics, well, you know, who is to yeah. say that those are a thing in the rearview mirror permanently? No, you know? I'm not saying that that's gone forever, but I also think that the situation is still similarly dire, right? The coronavirus is not done. The pandemic still looms. The arena related revenue, it accounts for 40% of what the NBA mm-hmm. makes. That's yep. $3 billion per year. So there's no way they're recouping all of that, even in the absolute best case scenario. Even if they had a vaccine tomorrow, I think there was a question, would you be able to distribute it in time for next season so that every fan could be in an arena, right? So they already know they're taking a big hit there. And so I think that just, it puts pressure on both sides because, you know, they are trying to limit the damage. And, you know, Michelle Roberts, you know, her message to me when I interviewed her a couple of weeks ago was just like, hey, as long as everybody doesn't get greedy, we're going to be okay, which is exactly what's underlying what you're saying. Basically, like, come on now, owners, like, don't try to run the other way with this thing, like stick with this, you know, stick with the game plan. And uh, I think ultimately the owners, if they can get their arenas back open, they can come up with some sort of a plan for that. I feel like that would be enough to kind of at least keep them keep their powder dry for another season and, and kind of keep their focus on the following year when when money should return to uh, something close to normal. But I just think that the NBA is still in this crisis, right? Just because the oh, bubble is yeah. ending, it does not mean that hey, we're all going back to normal. And I think that's an important perspective. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret, like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. This Father's Day, shop at the Home Depot to find the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. He's the weed-fighting, hedge-trimming, leaf-blowing lord of the lawn. He sees the job, and he gets it done. Because your dad is a doer. So show him you appreciate everything he does with the tools he needs to power up his landscaping game. This Father's Day, give him the convenience and gas-like power of innovative and durable Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad does, everything he is, and everything he can be, find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com.
When we come together, it's magic. And for 30 years, we've celebrated that because our ideas, our art, our flavor, our community, our impact, there's nothing like it here in this place. This is where we fall more in love with everything that makes us, us. This is the place where we love us. Celebrate 30 years of loving us at Essence Festival. Get your tickets at EssenceFestival.com. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. All right, Michael. One other question here um, came in from Misha. Misha writes, when was the last time we had a finals champion that had a roster as uninspiring as the Lakers? I think I'm going to take Dallas in 2011, but maybe even they were better. Michael, I'm not sure here because we've just been hyping up LeBron and and Anthony Davis. Those guys are not uninspiring, but I think his point is like you are getting a lot of minutes from guys who – we're pretty much nobodies, you know, um, whether it's Rajon Rondo, Dwight Howard, these last couple of years, they've just been bouncing around. You know, Danny Green's been up and down. Contavious Caldwell-Pope has been kind of a punching bag for fans for years. Now he's actually giving them good minutes. It's kind mm-hmm. of a slapdash um, roster. There's obviously a mercenary element to this Lakers group that I think turns off a lot of people, maybe including Misha, where it's 80s first year, Danny Green's first year, Dwight's first year, LeBron's second year. They don't have that shared camaraderie of going through the trenches together. Um, they only have a few guys who were really kind of uh, you know drafted and developed within that organization. Um, where do you come down on like Lakers inspiring versus uninspiring, and, and how would you answer Misha's question? Yeah, I mean, this could go in a lot of different directions, and it's like extremely subjective. Uh, I'm, I guess, like I would answer it by. Uh, really getting Laker fans on my good side again by saying that I found the 2009 and 2010 Lakers to be very un- uninspiring. I, I those those championship teams. If I had to go back, like I thought the the Dallas Mavericks in 2011 were that was like a neat team, and I, I thought it was really cool how they played and who was on that roster and how they complemented one another and all that. Um, but, like, you look at the names that were on the 2009 and 2010 uh, champion Lakers, like, there's Kobe and there's Pau, and then it's just, like, it's very similar almost to uh, the the groups that are winning it all, or the group that is about to win it all, I should say, um, in 2020, where it's, like, th- there's two really good players, Hall of Fame players, and then it's, like, Derek Fisher and Trevor Ariza and Jordan Farmar and... Luke Walton and uh, yeah, so, so it's like Shannon Brown. Um, you can go down the list of guys who just like are were not great in my opinion, who were somehow in the finals and hitting shots and all that. So that's like I guess the closest comp that I can come up with. Um, how would you answer this question? Oh wait, Celtics. No, I'm playing completely. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> although there was a pretty funny role players on that team too. I mean, they weren't oh, like hell yeah. necessarily yep. bad. I mean, they're more like cult icons or cult heroes or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. No, I don't know if I'm a sucker for like the championship DVD version of every season, but I think mm-hmm. I usually come around to like whatever team has won. I usually give them the credit, you know, like 
there was a lot of extenuating circumstances that helped Toronto, um, you know, get over the hump. And certainly I don't think they win that series if KD is healthy, right? But like, you know, you can start after all of it to be like, you know, there was a great transformation story from Kyle Lowry. Wow, Pascal Siakam came out of nowhere. I thought Ibaka and Gasol were done. Turns out they weren't done. And like, I just Mm -hmm. sort of, you know, time passes, you give them the credit, you remember them at least somewhat fondly. So I kind of feel the same way about this Lakers group. When they first started training camp, I did not see them as being a team that looked like title contenders just in practices. They looked like a two-man team. And I was like, well, we are just coming off this big super team era with Golden State. You're never going to be able to win a title with just two guys. It just seemed impossible to me. It turns out they got more from their supporting cast than I expected in a lot of key moments. And their two guys were better than Mm -hmm. I expected together. So um, it's wound up working out for them. I I guess my answer to Misha would be, you know, I don't necessarily view any team as like super uninspiring as a title team, but I do think the Warriors set such a high standard here these last couple of years that like everybody by comparison feels a little bit less impressive and that was going to be a natural byproduct for whoever won this year because there just were no true super teams. Even if the Clippers had won, where they probably had the most stacked quote-unquote roster, it still would have been uh, the same feeling. And I wonder how much of the NBA's rating decline is tied to that too. I mean, the Warriors were absolutely phenomenal. People loved watching Steph Curry. And that's not necessarily just past tense. You know, he's mm-hmm. going to be back. But the peak of the the mania around that Golden State team and everyone wanting to take their best shot and knock those guys off, it just hasn't existed mm-hmm. this year. And even with LeBron playing fabulous basketball, they have not reached that same height of popularity and frenzy among casual fans. And so I do attribute a good chunk of the of even just the lack of interest, uh, or not lack of interest, but diminished interest in the finals or the conference finals to the fact that we just don't have that evil empire Golden State Warriors team that uh, you know everybody had a take sure. on and everybody wanted to watch every second that they played. Sure. And I, I think, like, actually, it, my answer is more aligned with yours. I was trolling Laker fans. I apologize, Laker fans. But my, my answer is more like yours. Like, I find every champion to be inspiring and, um, and deserving of the title, of course. Um, but I do think, like, it is a – you bring up a really interesting point just about um, – you know, interest and the, t- the TV ratings and all that. And I mean, when the two-time MVP, uh, Giannis, doesn't get to the final, like, I feel like if the Bucks were in the finals, um, even more so than the Celtics, and I think Celtics-Lakers is something that even a casual fan is just drawn to, but like Giannis versus LeBron is just two titans going at it um for uh supremacy of the league for uh, you know um as the best player alive and all that and all those different narratives that are really um really and easy to engage with uh, if you're a casual fan so like i think that that's a factor also um but then like you look at the bucks and even the Lakers and just like every team in the league i mean going back to what you said about the warriors and the expectations that they set um, just as a truly all-time, maybe the best teams we've ever seen in basketball history, like there's going to be some type of drop-off. Um, and I wish that people, because I personally love the parody, you know, I love unpredictability. I wish that that was more of 
um, an attraction to people than maybe the super teams are. But I guess I can see it both ways. Any given Sunday, Pina. That's what you are right there. Um, <laughs> no, it makes it harder to... I mean, this year was really hard to handicap. It honestly was. And, you know, it's again, it's going to feel, oh, if the Lakers win it all, it's going to seem so obvious. It was not along the way. I mean, there was a lot not of twists and turns. It was very difficult to predict. You know, you mentioned trolling the Lakers fans, Michael, and I think that's a natural segue to a couple emails we got here about uh, potentially me trolling Celtics fans and you. Uh, Here it comes. Bridge writes, yes, the Celtics lost. Ben, your co-host Michael was being gracious and crediting the Heat team that played an amazing series and deserves the credit. You, on the other hand, are just being a bleep. When your co-host came onto the podcast, you were nice. (laughs) However, this has ended, obviously. Tom from Australia writes, could Ben please talk more about what life is like in the bubble, especially as the number of teams has decreased? Give us a feel about the changes in hotels, families, the in-game experience. Also, no disrespect, but a little disrespect. I'm glad the Celtics are out so we can move on from Ben trolling Michael and Michael taking the bait. P.S. I meant to email this a few weeks ago, but Michael sticking with Houston as his title pick and not changing every time Ben gave him an out was excellent. There's nobility in going down with the ship. I agree. I find uh, your predictions incredibly noble, Michael. Um, So we got a couple other emails along this line. We also got some emails the other way, Michael, in response to, um, (laughs) you know, in response to the the episode right after the Celtics got eliminated, where I was going pretty hard at you. So I just want to, you know, have an official statement here. Um, you know, in response to all of the feedback. First of all, um, the Celtics only get eliminated one day every year, okay? And that is just going to be a national holiday for me. I'm sorry. I listen to so much. I consume so much basketball media and so much Celtics talk over the course of a year. And, you know, not just you, Michael, but the entire Celtics media has this incredible way of skipping steps and hyping their guys and just getting so excited. So when they happen to get pulled back to earth just slightly, it's going to bring some happiness and some joy. And yes, maybe even some petty trolling and shade um, out of my heart. Okay. I'm not sure that at this point that I can restrain that. I do think there might've been a couple of times that I kicked you while you were down on Monday. I did think it was important to get your true pain and frustration after that loss because as I've mentioned now a couple times I thought Boston should have won that series um, if they had played to their potential so I do apologize to you if I was kicking you while you were down and I also think that you understand that it's not personal and hopefully the listeners can understand that too and also you understand that you can give it back anytime you want that's just part of the deal and our listeners love to give it back as well and frankly I kind of like taking it I've become sort of a, a sick mind in that way where you know I don't mind people emailing in the troll emails when Giannis gets eliminated or whatever else it's all part of the banter what I will not apologize for Michael is holding Jason Tatum to a high standard okay There is nothing in this world that grinds my gears more than unfulfilled potential. When A students play like B minus students, it absolutely kills me. It makes me so upset and I cannot control it. And there's deep-seated psychological reasons for this, Michael, because for about four or five years there in my life... I was a waste of everyone's time and space, all right? I was not fulfilling my potential. I was just screwing around, being a moron. We've probably all gone through those phases in our lives. But for me, you can't take back that time. You can't get those years back. All you can do, Michael, is inspire the next generation to reach their highest heights, okay? (laughs) 
And with Jason Tatum, he is an A student. Uh-huh. He's an A student, right? Yes. He was the most ta- – he's purely talented. It's him or Bam in that series. In terms of offensive talent, it's clearly him. I just want to see a little bit more. That's all. And it frustrated me that the, the conversation around the Celtics, and not just from you, but just from everyone in general, was focused on the weak links. And the bottom line is if you want to be a title team, if you want to – and that's in Boston's future potentially, right? They've got these amazing – foundational pieces if you want to be a title team you're not relying upon your b students to take you there you're relying on your a students to take you there that's jason tatum right if he plays like a b minus every single fourth quarter when it matters you're not going to get there and so this is not an indictment on who his character oh he's a choker he's never going to be able to get it done he's you know screwed for the rest of his life i'm just burn his jersey sell his stock none of that stuff right it's just about at this particular moment at 22 he did not fulfill his potential. It seemed like it was happening around him and that he wasn't always necessarily completely in control of his own story. And we're going to see that change as he grows up. When he's 24, 25, 26, 27, he's going to get better control of that stuff. He's going to understand what to do in those moments. He's going to realize that he shouldn't live and die with Marcus Smart jumpers and Kemba Walker forays to nowhere, and he's going to be the man. And I can't wait to see it because I love to see potential fulfilled. If you look at the the players who I always stand out for, it's guys who max out every possible bit of their ability, right? Giannis is probably the purest example of that. So for all the people out there who thought I went a little too hard on Michael and everything else, if Tatum put in as much commitment as Michael has had during this bubble to his work in the fourth quarters, Boston would still be playing. Bottom line. Okay, so I, I thank you for your apology. It was unnecessary. We all know this is in in, in good fun and, and someday the Celtics uh, led by Jason Tatum will win the championship and you will literally for the rest of your time on this planet never go a day without me sending you a text message to remind you of this fact so I don't it's, it's perfectly <laughs> fine um, I, I, I my thing with Tatum is always just like uh, yes I think he deserves criticism but I think it should always be contextualized by his age and the fact that this is his third year and the fact that we don't ever see anyone in league history do the things that he did in the bubble struggles struggles included in that statement um so uh obviously he has a lot of really talented teammates he has a really good coaching staff the organization is is awesome um he was the best player on a team that made it to the conference finals and was favored to go to the finals so that is just that is uh, it speaks to his his greatness now it speaks to his potential in the future and so I think that whenever we do criticize him, we should also pepper in the fact that, um, hey, this this type of player just does not come along very often. 100%. And that's because you're his dad or his family member, right? <laughs> I'm his life coach, okay? I'm already taking those that progress. I'm already, I'm already saying, look, you've set that benchmark. You've accomplished it. We know who you are. Now what's the next step? Let's push you a little bit harder. Let's make sure you're an A student throughout your entire life. That's all I want to see. And um, it's coming, by the way. I'm terrified, okay? The next couple of years of, of watching Jason Tatum from an anti-Celtics perspective, quote-unquote anti-Celtics perspective, you know, trying to lean into that role a little bit, <laughs> it's pretty terrifying, I uh, got to say, you know, and, um, and it will be fun to see him get there. I just think that this will go down as a learning experience for him. He is going to watch the tape from this year, the, you know, this year's Eastern Conference Finals, 
And once it truly settles in, he's going to be like, what the heck happened at a lot of moments in that series? And that's healthy. And everyone's gone through that, LeBron included, MJ included, not putting him in that category. I'm just saying he plays by the same rules as everyone else. I hope that cleared up um, the anger over the Celtics trolling. And bottom line, Michael, you can admit, just objectively, it's funnier when the Celtics lose than when any other team loses, isn't it? I am not going to agree with that one. I'm sorry. I, I, <laughs> I'm not going to go there. Uh, I do not think that it is it is uh, as entertaining or thrilling or or amusing. Um, it is. I do. I do see a my my all time least favorite narrative that we've seen in professional sports over the past however many years um, is that uh, the Celtics. You know, will the Celtics ever get over the hump? You know, they've been always pushing across, the, pushing this rebuild, rebuild down the line, and and when are they actually going to get there? And it's like, when your best player is twenty two and your second best player is twenty three, like, what what are we even talking about? Like, this is all ahead of schedule. I don't understand. Like, this is this is all gravy. I, I like what I, I like. If Luka Doncic got to the conference finals, would be we be like, man, like that Luka. Couldn't get it done, sucked it up, and the Dallas Mavericks are, are choke artists. Like, no, we would say, okay, he learned from this, and he would, he will have an extremely bright future, and someday he'll probably win it all. So that's like my number one, just like, what are we even doing as a society of sports fans criticism? I would, um, I would push back on that slightly because I think, well, first of all, this would have been Luca's first shot at it, right? I think everybody gets at least one or two passes, and Tatum lived in that honeymoon period at a younger age than anybody else because he was in the conference finals at what, 19, right? Um, and so when you're coming back third time, next year will be the fourth time. Those expe- expectations do go up. Same deal for Brad Stevens, by the way. I think he's gotten multiple passes, and rightfully so, for playoff series losses. He did not get that one this year. There's no way. I mean, this one definitely goes on his record as a big L for his career, and yep. the pressure is going to be on next year for sure. I also think they're separate from the Boston part of, of the narrative and the age of Tatum and all that, we are on really, really fast pressurized cycles right now when it comes to development, right? This idea that you're going to have a five-year, eight-year window to win a title. Oh, I agree with all this, yeah. That part is true. I mean, it applies to Milwaukee and Giannis too, right? I mean, when Giannis was first coming up as the most improved player and then, you know, he follows that up with an MVP season, you feel like Milwaukee's going to have a dynasty for 10 years. Well, fast forward 18 months and like, they're just trying to keep the house together, right? Um, they're making difficult decisions. Do we fire our coach or not? You know, can we get a time machine and bring Malcolm Brogdon back? Like things got very real for them very quickly. So I think that's also baked into this idea of, of why there's short-term pressure on a player like Tatum, even though he's young, is just that there's more pressure to win now because teams don't last as long as they do. And it would be amazing if Tatum and Brown can kind of buck that trend and say, you know what? We actually fit really well together. We're both pretty chill personalities. Um, you know, we, we're making the most of our partnership together. We're just going to play together for 10 years and it's going to be great. Um, but it also would have been fantastic for Philly to be like, hey, guess what? We've got two number one picks in Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid, and this is going to carry us for 15 years. And it carried them right into a ditch pretty darn quickly. Yeah, it's, I mean, this is the player empowerment era, right? And and uh, that's a whole different conversation. But, like, my whole thing also, real quick, is while we're on this subject, because I know we're never going to get to talk about this again, is just that if you are, if you're, like, put, putting yourself in Danny Ainge's shoes with the Celtics, like, what, my whole thing is, like, what did he do that was so egregious 
that makes you be like that, that deserves the criticism. Like if you're talking about Philly, we can go through a laundry list of things that they did to screw this all up. If you're looking at Boston, it's like I, I did he make any what like what decision would you say over the past few years was was like egregiously incorrect? Um, because like if you go back, what he wanted to do was sign Anthony Davis. So from that perspective. Or trade for Anthony Davis. So from that perspective, it's like, okay, he he accumulated all these assets. He's trying to get this guy who we talked about earlier in this episode as a transformative figure. And so everyone who knows anything about basketball should be trying to get Anthony Davis. And like sometimes that just, it, you know, it's out of your hands with, oh, with a situation with like you. that. No, I'm with you. I don't think I've actually directly criticized Danny ever this year. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I don't, I really don't think, I mean, to me, it's uh-huh. funnier that like the Celtics media gets so wrapped up. Oh, we're gonna get Anthony Davis. Like they just always skip to the end, right? And like, oh, well, we were gonna draft Tyler Hero, but then this happened. Or there's always these what ifs that kind of emerge. Oh, the Justice Winslow trade. There's gonna be four first round picks. Blah, blah, you know, all these different things. And that the the what ifs and the alternate scenarios and imagine if this had happened and all that. Plus, on top of that, just the idol worship. Which, you know, is understandable when you're making a trade like Tatum for Fultz. Like, that's going to give you five years of a pass in terms of how people talk about you online. Just bottom line. Or even the um, Paul Pierce-Kevin Garnett trade. Again, like, that buys you so much goodwill, um, and rightfully so, both from media and the fan base, that I do understand that. But it's just the alternate histories that the Boston seems uniquely interested in floating out there (laughs) that it winds up kind of being blowback moments especially when they don't get Anthony Davis and Anthony Davis is dominating the finals for their primary rivals when they're going home there's going to be a blowback there's going to be a little splashback there I think that's understandable hey let's close this episode up real quickly Michael I wanted to get your thoughts we haven't even talked about this offline on the Clippers parting with coach Doc Rivers they claimed it was mutual. I believe mm. that means that they just fired him and gave him so much money that he wasn't <laughs> mad about it. <laughs> um, Zach writes, before talking about Doc's accomplishments as a coach, in the year that we are having, I think it's more important to recognize how important he was as a strong, unapologetic voice for justice. He's more important to Americans as a strong voice on the most important issue our country faces than he is as a coach of a game, even if it's a game we love and need to give us brief distraction from an increasingly ominous world. He will find another head coaching job and the league will be better for having him in it. Then Art says... Now that Doc is gone, how much do you think that the roster will change, if at all, and should it change for the Clippers? Lou Will is a perennial playoff underachiever, and Montrez Harrell's strengths don't seem to make up for his weaknesses. So for me, they should go with the trade deadline after they've rebuilt some of their value. So um, what did you make of the Clippers' decision to, um, to part with Doc Rivers? Was it surprising to you? Was it the right move? And then where do the Clippers go from here? And also, I mean, do you agree with Zach's point here that like, the dot conversation shouldn't just be about the uh, the Clippers flame out. Yeah, I 100% agree with uh, everything that Zach said in his email. And yeah, it was stunning. I mean, from a basketball perspective, it was stunning. From a, I did not expect them to fire a respected black head coach during this time where all these black head coaches are getting fired perspective. So I, it was, yeah, it was shocking. And I'm still a little taken aback by the fact that um, 
like Doc Rivers is probably going to be the head coach of the Philadelphia 76ers and could that could have been announced while we were recording this podcast I don't know but he seems to be the front runner don't rush um, into it doc <laughs> um I you know I think that uh yeah, yeah that situation is I I wouldn't I wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole um but I think he'll be great there and I do think that the league just is better um as a whole like product uh with someone like him in it he's a really powerful figure I wrote about this during the bubble and, you know, whether it's as a head coach, whether it's as a broadcaster, which is a a role that I know Doc isn't like ready to do and probably is over or definitely is overqualified for. But just as someone who is just in our lives, um, I, I like I like Doc Rivers in my life is what I'm trying to say. So it was it was totally stunning uh, to me. And to answer the second part of the question, just about the Clippers, um, you know, I kind of think they're going to roll it back mostly. I mean, Doc actually had a really good point that I never even considered uh, that was reported, and I think it was an ESPN story, um, about how he thought that the Clippers needed a true point guard. Uh, That's fascinating to me because we didn't, like, he's a former point guard, first of all, and, like, them needing like a Monte Morris type of figure or a Rajon Rondo, who Doc obviously has a relationship with, someone who can organize the offense when things are going terribly and get stars set up as opposed to stars having to initiate all the action themselves, I thought was really fascinating. And it's not really shots at Pat Beverly. That's just not who Pat Beverly is. He's a, he's a three and D. He's like a six foot tall three and D player. Um, so I thought that that was really interesting. And so if they're, you know, we'll see what, what kind of moves they make. But I don't think Montrez Harrell is a problem. I think Montrez Harrell was hampered by a lot of uh, of variables related to the bubble. I think Lou Williams is really good, even though he missed some key layups and also had his own bubble issues. Um, I think the roster will look very, very similar next year. Maybe they add that point guard and listen to Doc, even though they fired him. Um, but... But yeah, no, I you know I think that they have to figure it out with what they have, just given kind of their their cap issue. And we should say that Montrezl Harrell is a free agent, and he could you know go to Cleveland if he wants and make a ton of a lot more money there, and and be a pick and roll partner for Darius Garland and Colin Sexton for all we know. But uh, but besides that, like I think it'll be pretty similar. Yeah, look, he's he's going to be hoping for a cash out, and that's one of the trickiest parts with the um, the NBA's financial uncertainty is, is there going to be teams that have the ability to really pay him big, or is he almost stuck and like you take a short-term deal and, and hope that you can uh, get back into a friendlier market environment you know, a year or two down the road? That's kind of an open question there. If I were them, I would move on from Lou Williams. I do think that he's he's a, uh, wow. a regular season tease and a postseason – uh, you know, not no show, but you know, he comes back to earth. I think he would have been picked on just like Tyler Hero in a in a series against LeBron and there would have been nowhere to hide him and he would have been in, in real deep trouble. I agree with your point and Doc's point on the point guard situation. We actually knew that coming into the season. They thought they could get around it with having Kawhi and Paul George both as, you know, pretty solid ball handlers, but not um, you know, extraordinary ball handlers or playmakers for their teammates. And it worked at times, didn't work at others, and they just need another initiator, you know, and, and Beverly's not really up to that task. You know, if you move Lou Williams out, you can p- play Beverly almost more like a two and then, you know, see where you can kind of go from there. 
I do think they're going to keep the main core group as intact as possible. And I think my bigger point that I want to make on Doc, it's less about, you know, Doc's job performance. And Jovan Butha wrote a really good piece for The Athletic, just running down, you know, potential grievances that have developed over these last couple of years. So I encourage everyone to read that. The context I want to add here, though, is, is Steve Ballmer. You got to understand, this guy is playing by completely different rules than mm-hmm. every other owner in the NBA. His net worth is $70 billion, seven zero. He spent $2 billion on the Clippers. He spent $1 billion plus on the new arena that's being built. And he spent $400 million cash during the height of the pandemic to buy another building from James Dolan just so that it wouldn't obstruct his current building that he's he's constructing in Inglewood, right? So money is no object. It's not even close. When he's pursuing or, or um, approaching a decision like, do I want to keep Doc or not? His threshold for when is it okay to move on from a coach is lower than every owner in NBA history. Every single person there is disposable to Steve Ballmer. The only thing he cares about is results. He does not care about feelings. He does not care about excuses, and there were a lot of excuses, including some from Doc, that came out after that humiliating loss, right? So in the toughest moment of Ballmer's tenure, we really shouldn't be that surprised that he wants to shake things up. He wants to change direction because he doesn't have to view this like a normal organization does. Contrast this with Milwaukee. They also have billionaire owners, but they're run-of-the-mill billionaire owners. They're not 70 billionaire owners, right? And so they don't—they keep uh, Mike Budenholzer because obviously, you know, he's he's entrenched there, and to move on from him would be expensive, and to find a new coach would also be expensive. Steve Ballmer could, you know, take any coach in the league and take their salary and multiply it by 10 tomorrow, and have no problem—not even notice it, right? It's just so. You know, Real quick, like this is why I love the conspiracy theory that I am personally floating and starting that uh, Kawhi Leonard wanted Nick Nurse to be the head coach <laughs> of, the, of the Clippers, even though Nick Nurse signed that extension with Toronto because Bomber is just like, Bomber's like, okay, I'll buy the Raptors. And then it's right. like, it's like, I, I, like what Bomber is on his own planet right now. He's one of the richest people in the whole world. Exactly my point. And so that's what I'm saying. So you have to look at this as different from a typical coaching change. And you also have to look at the Clippers uh, job, which by the way, if on strictly basketball terms, that's challenging. Can you connect with Kawhi Leonard? Difficult question. Greg Popovich couldn't hold on to that connection, right? Um, can you get playoff P to be a real postseason performer in, in Paul George? Well, that's a tricky that might question. That impossible. <laughs> right. You know, can you put together a locker room that clearly had some issues this year? Well, that could be a tricky question. You're inheriting a lot of baggage from a basketball standpoint. But the Clippers' job is the best job in the league, period, because Steve Ballmer has already showed you he's going to pay a ridiculous premium at every step of the way for everything. I mean, he's got like, you know, double the size of a typical front office. He had A-list medical team brought in. He upgraded their practice facility this year with millions of dollars of renovations. Even though they're moving out of it in three years to go to the new arena, he will pay any price, right? And so from an agent, you're like, this is the greatest thing ever, right? A guy who's obsessed with basketball, who's willing to spend any amount of money. How do we get my coaches in front of him? And so I just think that, um, you know, Doc winds up being a casualty of very unique circumstances here. Um, it wasn't just about his performance. It was about Balmer and his insane expectations. And this could blow back on Balmer, by the way, because I do think professional basketball is a relationships business. 
if you start to get this reputation of you'll trade Blake Griffin because you're cutthroat and you don't care, you'll you'll fire Doc Rivers because you're cutthroat and you don't care, that could come back to haunt you at some point. It's possible. And look, the Blake tra- uh, Griffin trade was obviously the right move. I think that moving on from Doc is defensible given the circumstances and how bad they they looked down the stretch of their bubble play. They absolutely should have mm-hmm. beat Denver in that series. But there is going to be a perception question that follows Balmer with these moves. And it's just something that we need to watch here as the Clippers enter pretty much the highest pressure season of their entire uh, franchise history. I, I know we're running long here. I have one quick question for you, Ben, before we wrap up. Do you believe uh, the report that the Clippers and Steve Ballmer were going to move on from Doc even if they made the finals? No, I hadn't seen that. Who, who reported that? That was, I think that was in Jovan's story. Oh, I must have missed that line. Um, like, if it basically, it was that much of a championship or bust equation? It was a, there were so many issues that Bomber had and the organization had with Doc and Doc's approach that even if the Clippers beat the Nuggets and advanced and either lost in the Western Conference Finals to the Lakers or beat the Lakers and then uh, got to the finals, that after the season, Doc would be out. I believe that someone would have said that. I don't believe that that's necessarily true. Because remember, Doc just got his second extension here recently, um, and he was making a lot of money from Ballmer. That was in 2019. Um, He and Lawrence Frank go back decades, and and Lawrence Frank is the head of that front office. I don't see any scenario where Lawrence Frank is that upset with Doc's performance or personality or anything else like that. I mean, there Mm -hmm. there were some clear tension points playing Montrez Harrell over Zubak during the playoffs. I also think Doc has such a loud voice. He's such an inspirational and public figure that he overshadows the players in the locker room at times. You know, players are often asked questions. Well, hey, Doc said this. What do you think? I think that could get a little bit old for some guys. I do think that there was, um, you know, accusations of a double standard, you know, for how Doc treated the two superstars versus how he treated everybody else. Um, That is a Mm -hmm. very tricky dynamic for any coach to deal with. But yeah. if they win, all that stuff gets swept under the rug. I mean, and if yep. they make the finals, they win the finals, bottom line. <laughs> so, like, I, I don't necessarily believe that spin after the fact. Um, you know, I think that in some cases, when you're parting with a very popular and longstanding figure, really an icon for that franchise, especially among the fan base, you want it to seem as rational and defensible as possible. And um, and I think that, that maybe some of that is, is stemming from that. But you know, uh, who knows? We'll never fully know the, the entire story until the players come out and speak on it. It is telling, as Jovan noted, that uh, none of the players were like, bye, Doc, thanks for the years. It was uh, it was all crickets on social media after he left. So that's, uh, that's a little bit of an indictment there for, you know, how the last year went. All right, uh, Michael, on that note, we've reached the end of another episode of Open Floor. Guys, check us out on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review. Tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Now, Michael is on Instagram and Twitter at Michael Victor Pina. Check out his work at 538 uh, GQ and everywhere else he's been pumping stories out, um, you know, really living up to a higher standard than his favorite player, Jason Tatum. Check me out on Instagram at Ben.Golliver. I'm on Twitter at Ben.Golliver. Check out my Washington Post newsletter. It comes out every Monday. It's free. Be sure to subscribe to that. The link is on my Twitter page. All right, Michael. Until next week when we'll double back after games two and three of the NBA Finals, I will talk to you. Talk soon, guys. Hey, hey.
When we come together, it's magic. And for 30 years, we've celebrated that because our ideas, our art, our flavor, our community, our impact, there's nothing like it here in this place. This is where we fall more in love with everything that makes us, us. This is the place where we love us. Celebrate 30 years of loving us at Essence Festival. Get your tickets at EssenceFestival.com. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. An October morning in a quiet suburb in a town in Scotland. A man is walking his dog when suddenly shots are fired from a car. The man falls to the ground and the car speeds off. An ordinary residential area, but extraordinary things happen in ordinary places. The instinct right away was it was a political thing. We're talking about Russian trained, high-ranking officer in the Secret Service. An Assassin Comes to Town, a six-part podcast. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, iHeart listener. We have a confession to make. Both iHeart and this commercial you're listening to right now would probably sound a heck of a lot better on the new Roku Pro Series TV. It's got side-firing speakers that fill your room with sound, Dolby Atmos audio that puts you right in the middle of the entertainment, and the ability to pair seamlessly with your home theater sound systems that already have surround sound and booming bass. If all that sounds too good to be true, it'll sound even better on the new Roku Pro Series. Your hearing isn't better. Your TV is. 